I'll just read Psalm 126 now. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, as always, um, I think it will be more beneficial um, if you have the passage open in front of you uh, at Psalm 126. And also, just a wee uh, pre-warning that uh, during the course of the, the service, there'll be a couple of other references that I'll be directing you to. Again, it will be helpful if you're able to turn to them just to get the full uh, sense of it all. So, let me just remind, I know most of you have been at most of the um, series on these Psalms of Ascent, but for those who haven't been, let me just uh, again introduce it by saying that these 15 Psalms that start at number 120, uh, and of course we're in number 7 of these songs of ascent, um, they were songs that were sung by, by pilgrim worshippers who travelled um, at the annual feasts from wherever it was in the country they, uh, where they lived um, up to Jerusalem, the capital, where the temple was, uh, so that they would worship God. And frequently they sang these songs as they traveled up uh, to Jerusalem. And that's the reason they're called the Psalms of Ascent, because Jerusalem was up on a hill and they ascended. Um, and these are of great help to us, because the whole idea of pilgrimage is, is tied in with this. And that is such a key concept as far as what it means to be a Christian. It's to, to try and grasp this, this sense that, that I am a pilgrim. Now, of course, not a term that we tend to use an awful lot these days. We tend to think of the pilgrim fathers or something like that. So a pilgrimage, of course, is more than just a journey. You know, a journey is you go from A to B. Well, you do travel when you're a pilgrim, but it's the whole reason for the journey that makes it a pilgrimage. There's a reason behind it. You know, so in a secular sense, you might understand why a family might travel to France um, to visit the, the World War II battlefields or the cemeteries if a family member was, was, was killed and was buried there. It, it's a kind of pilgrimage to, to honor the, the, the family member that they would go there. Uh, during the summer, uh, we did part of what was called, well, we didn't do very much of it, it's called St. Cuthbert's Way in Northumberland, takes you to Holy Island. You know, it's part of a pilgrimage, a way back, you know, centuries ago when the gospel first came to that part uh, of, the, of the country and people still walk that pilgrim way today. This was a pilgrimage. And through our New Testament, that word comes up. If you were to read it in First Peter, he refers to his readers who, in fact, at, at a very physical level, were pilgrims. You know, because 
they had been exiled, they had been scattered from their homes because of persecution. And he, he, he talks to these people who are exiles. And yet, at a deeper sense, he uses that word as well. And he says, you are pilgrims and strangers on this earth. He says, I want you to understand that is who you are. I want you to, when you look in the mirror, first thing in the morning, and look at your face, and ask yourself the question, who am I? What am I? The answer has to be, I'm a pilgrim. You know, I don't belong here. I'm an exile. I'm a displaced person. I live in this world but I'm traveling to another place. Much in the same way as Hebrews 11 refers to Abraham, where it said that um, along with uh, Jacob and with Isaac, they lived in tents in the promised land. They, They never built a house of stone, and they never lived in a house of stone. They lived in tents, moving from place to place because they were looking for the city whose builder And whose maker was God. They were looking for the eternal city. They were living by faith. Traveling through with an understanding that this world wasn't really their home. But their home was further ahead. So this whole idea of pilgrimage is uh, is tied into these Psalms. And uh, uh, again, if you you know your uh, Christian uh, history novel. Well, it's not a novel, but book. John Bunyan, you know, the... Uh, the tinker from Bedford, who wrote that famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, the pilgrim was meant to be progressing. You know, Maybe that book could be rewritten today and it could be called The Pilgrim's Regress. You know, because we ask ourselves the question, am I progressing as a pilgrim or am I regressing? Am I going downhill? Am I going backward in the Christian life? So what I I want us to look at, as you can see here in the the title of the talk, um, it's uh, being a three-tense pilgrim. There are three tenses in this uh, particular Psalm 126 that are very important. Pretty straightforward, past, present, and future. There are things that are said about each tense that help us to progress in this sense of being a pilgrim and to be able to sing from our hearts a psalm like this, a pilgrim psalm as we travel to to Zion, you know, the beautiful city of God that as Christians we're making our way to. So so let's look at these these three tenses, uh, hopefully fairly briefly. Now, um, we're, we're looking at verses 1 to 3 first of all and we're looking at the past tense and uh, you, can, you, can, you can see that when, then it's, 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 it's in the past and he's saying when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion we were like those that dreamt so he's looking to the past he's looking to their history And he's looking to a particular point in their history. And this is when their exile, their restoration from their captivity in Babylon was was reversed. They, for 70 years, had had been exiled. 
the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had come and ransacked the country and taken the population away to Babylon, and the country was, was desolate. And for 70 years, it was desolate. And the people lived in Babylon, and, and they were just assumed into that culture. In fact, you read about that, if you want to flick further forward to one of the other Psalms of Ascent, in Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. You know, it was desperate times for them. They remembered where they came from, and they remembered why it was that they had been led into captivity. It was because of their idolatry and their sin against God that they were taken away. And, and, and the people looked on them a bit like a, a freak show. If you read down there, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You know, these beautiful Hebrew melodies, you know, well, on the harp and the minor keys, you know. Sing us one of these famous songs of Zion. We'd love to hear that. And they said, how can we sing the, the Lord's song in a, in a strange land? And for 70 years this went on. And then it almost seemed out of the blue, completely unexpected, the, the king who had succeeded eventually, Nebuchadnezzar, a man called Cyrus, issued a decree, an edict, that the people of Judah could go back again to their homelands. And that's, that's when this was written. This is what it's all about. This is part of their history. When, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we, we were like those that dreamt. It was as though they were walking on air. You know, they, they had never imagined that this day would have come. It was almost as if they, they needed to pinch themselves and to think that who could ever have thought that this day would have come round when, when we were going back home again and this exile would be restored. Now, just, just for a little point of uh, detail in the history, if you're interested in this you can, you can check it out later on this return from exile took place in three phases, alright first of all um, under Zerubbabel who was the governor, and you'll read about that in Ezra chapters 1 to 6, and then Ezra himself Ezra the scribe was a major player, and you read about that in Ezra 7 to 10. And then the third wave of the return was under Nehemiah, again a governor who helped to build the walls of Jerusalem. So it was in three phases uh, that it took place. Now, the big thing about what happened was this. They, they had this realization, and, 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 and we have it repeated twice in, in this uh, first section, that the Lord has done great things for us, and we're glad. You know, their mouth is filled with laughter, their tongues with songs of joy. It's just a marvelous occasion as they, they almost kind of skip back all those miles from Babylon back to Jerusalem again. You know, the Lord has done great things for us. And we're, I mean, even the surrounding nations couldn't understand it. You know, the, the correspondents for the Times or the Guardian of the day were, were writing in their columns and saying, we can't understand how all this has happened. You know, look at what has happened as far as this nation is concerned. We've never seen fortunes restored in the way that this has happened. 
a nation reborn again, reconstituted again. And they said, the Lord has done great things for them. Well, it would have been a pretty picture if that was all that could be said. The commentators say that, but we don't say it ourselves. But they were saying it for themselves. And that that is an application for us. To remember that as far as we are concerned as as pilgrims, as Christian people, to, to grasp this again as part of our history, as part of our own past, the Lord has done great things for us. You know, sometimes we live our lives and we kind of mumble and bumble our way through And it's easy, of course it is, to be taken up with everything that's going on and the things that happen to us and to lose sight of this very fundamental and straightforward point, the greatness of what God has done for our souls. I mean, from their point of view, it was just a physical return to their homes. And that was a great thing. Of course we can understand all of that. But if you compare it with the terms of what Rod read to us earlier on from Ephesians chapter 2 about being dead in our trespasses and in our sins and yet Christ in his grace intervening and and, and making us alive again and, and placing us in the heavenly places in Christ and giving us the hope of glory I mean, the Lord has done great things I mean, that's the only word that you can really use The Lord just hasn't done moderate things for us. The Lord has done tremendous things in the lives of those who believe in him. And as I was thinking about that, um, I was thinking of some of the, the passages that use the word great in it. You remember the story of the demon possessed man? And, uh, nobody could tame him. And the Lord Uh, is able to do that and he's found after assaulting the population and all the rest of it for years he's sitting at the feet of Christ in his right mind and he wants to to be with Christ and travel with him and be one of his disciples and the Lord says no you go home to your own people and you tell them this tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you The Lord has done tremendous things for us. I was thinking of Psalm 103 when uh, the writer of that psalm, he talks about how the angels might praise God, all the hosts might praise God, but how it's, it's right for him personally to do that. And these are some of the things that he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, my soul, And all that is within me, bless his holy name. And forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with his steadfast love and compassion. The great things that have been done for us in Christ. And and, and there are... Other many examples where this word comes up as well. And that's what we are to grasp. We are to grasp our history and our past. 
because that will inform how we live as pilgrims. Secondly, uh, we go into the present tense. And uh, the interesting thing is that although they've been able to look to the past and say that, well, it was a wonderful thing when the Lord did restore our fortunes, what they're now saying in verse 4 is, well, but we want our fortunes restored currently, presently. At this time, that is our prayer. Restore now our fortunes like like streams in the Negev. I mean, it's all very well having a history. But, you know, you can't live in the old days. You can't live in the past unless the past informs the present and motivates and inspires us in the present. Then it's worth it. You remember the story of Elisha, uh, the new prophet, the new kid on the block. Elijah has gone to heaven in a chariot of fire and the mantle of Elijah has fallen down and Elisha picks it up and he walks down to the Jordan River and he smites the river. And you know what he says? He says this, where now, now, where now is the Lord God of Elijah and the, and the, and the Jordan parts. And the, the point was this, here, here is the next man on. He's taken the torch, so to speak. And he's not just looking to the example of Elijah, but he wants now the Lord God of Elijah to be with him in his situation. And that, that's really what they're saying. There is the need for a restoration of our fortunes now at this time. I couldn't help but think actually of another example here. Um, you read it in Ezra, you know, as part of the return of the captives. And it's in chapter 3 when they're starting things off once they get back. And the foundation of the temple has just been laid. And they're having a kind of commissioning service for that. And um, there's a mixed response. Because all the young people are there. And and they, they are just so thrilled with the fact that we're starting all over again and, and we're moving ahead and we're looking to the future and we've started to build the temple and there are shouts of joy that go up. But, but there are old people there at the same time and, 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 and they're actually weeping in contrast. And the reason for it is that they remember what the original temple was like. In all its glory and how it had been decimated and destroyed and ransacked. And they're looking at, you know, the small beginnings and it just seems like nothing in comparison to what it used to be like. And, and there's a noise and the noise is a combination of shouts of joy and of tears of sadness at the same time. And there is a sense in which you need both of these things. You need both of them. You, you look to the past and you, you aspire to the glory of what it was like. And you don't want to just have small things, but you've got to start somewhere to make that journey towards it. We, we do need to have a present tense as far as our uh, pilgrimage uh, is concerned. Now, look at, look at one of the main points as far as the current restoration is concerned. Uh, it's up on the, uh, on the screen there. Those who sow, now, currently, present tense, those who sow in tears 
shall reap with shouts of joy. Sowing in tears. That's what it means to to be a pilgrim, is to sow in tears. You know, he gives the analogy here about the Negev desert, and um, you can, you know, that's the, the desolate part of countryside that the the pilgrims would have travelled up from the south, from the Jericho region, you know, up towards Jerusalem. And depending on what time of year it was, you know, sometimes just just sand. But sometimes when the rains came, very quickly, you know, it became pretty fertile round about where the river courses were. And so their prayer is, what happens, as far as the countryside is concerned, in the Negev, you know, we want that to happen at a spiritual level as far as we're concerned. And it's almost as if, you know, they sow a seed. They want something to grow. What's the rain? The rain is, in fact, their tears. You know, with tears, with weeping, they they sow seed. And they're looking for that to produce a harvest in the future. Now, let let me just take up a couple of points. This is is the point where I I want you to follow me in in a couple of reference checking, because I think you'll get the most out of it here. I want want to talk about, I want to show you at least three examples of how we can sow. All right? Um, How we can sow. Uh, The Lord Jesus, of course, used that illustration, very well-known parable about the the parable of the sower uh, who went forth to sow the farmer. Now, the point, of course, about, about that part of it is that uh, the yield, if you remember, was, was only one in four because there, there, there were different categories of soil. There was um, the path, there was the thorns, there was the stony ground, and there was the good soil. And it was only the seed that fell on the good soil that yielded fruit. Now, Jesus is very clear, and this is point number one, uh, about sowing, that the seed is the word of God. He said, this is why I'm telling you this. You know, you're you're going out, and I want you to sow the seed of the word of God. Um, And, you know, there will be a harvest, and, and, and things will grow. But it won't grow from every category of person that you sow it into. Remember, this, I might have told you this. I remember uh, hearing a story about uh, B- Billy Graham being being on an aeroplane, and um, there's a guy. A guy who was a bit worse of wear as far as drink was concerned, and he was making a bit of a nuisance of himself. And uh, the air hostesses were trying their best to kind of settle him down and calm him down, and it wasn't working. Till eventually they said to him, "You need to watch it. You know, Billy, Billy Graham is here. Just just behave yourself. You know, he's he's here." And he and he said, "Billy Graham, let me shake your hand. You have been a great help to me. You know, and of, of course, not as much help as everybody else thought he would be. Um, perhaps he was." It was stony ground or whatever. But the point is that, you know, sometimes we do so in tears. And, 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 and some of you, and, you know, have maybe for years been, been sowing the seed um, as far as family members are concerned or, or friends or, or relatives or, or neighbors. 
And, um, and sometimes that, that sowing has, has been difficult and tough. Um, and it's, and it's, it's engendered tears at times. And, and, and we're told to, to keep at that, to keep sowing. Uh, because out there somewhere, there, there is good soil. Sometimes it might not be, but there is good soil out there. And uh, the seed uh, has got life in it of itself. It's a life-bearing seed. Peter talks about it as the living, the incorruptible seed of the word of God, which, which gives life to people. When it enters into their heart. And so we, we, we take it on board that what we have as far as this book is concerned. And, and the gospel is concerned. To, to regather our confidence in it. That we don't have to apologize for it. It's the, it's the seed of the word of God. And we need to keep on keeping on. And sowing that seed in whatever kind of area or sphere that we can, that we can do that in. Now, the second example of, of sowing is not so much in preaching the word of God, but the analogy is used in a different way. Let, let me ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, on this one. 2 Corinthians 9. He lays down a principle, and the principle is this, that if you sow sparingly, this is verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So there's a correlation about how much sowing I do with the expectation of the yield that comes. And so it's a, that's a big challenge, isn't it, to all of us? In our lives, am I a bountiful sower? Now, in this passage here, it's not so much the word of God that he's talking about when he's talking about sowing. He's talking about, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is about the financial support of, of God's workers and God's work. And, and, and what he's, he's saying to the Corinthians is, you know, I'm going to take this gift that you're giving to me back to Judea, to the poor who are there, and I'll, I'll give it to them. And you're sowing a seed into their lives. Now, it's a challenge to us, of course, to, to financially support the Lord's work. You know, we, we try to do that, of course, here in Hebron. We've got a number of mission partners in a variety of parts of the world. Um, and uh, we've, we've heard of, from people relatively recently in the Sunday evening services from, you know, the Christian police, from the Scripture Union, from the Lighthouse down in Tilledrone and other places. And we have a responsibility to sow that seed so that a harvest might come from it. But what I want to point out here is the harvest can be in a number of ways. Now, look, look at this. First of all, the harvest is in terms of the praise and glory that comes to God. Now look, look down at um, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. They will glorify God because of the help that they have received through them. And more than that, secondly, there is a sense of love and fellowship and partnership and togetherness that is produced by that. Verse 14. While they long for you and they pray for you, these are the recipients, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. They've received a token of the love of these other, this other group over here. And, and because of that, they pray and they give thanks for the grace of God in their hearts. You see what sowing a seed does. You see the harvest that comes from sowing that seed. Third way you can th- sow a seed. Galatians chapter 6. And this, this is seed that can be sown personally into our own lives. Right? Not so much in supporting others. Not so much in sharing the gospel. But in our own hearts and in our own lives. Look at Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh, his own sinful nature, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so we have to ask ourselves, what am I sowing into my own heart and into my own mind? Let's not be deceived. You know, no matter what the media tells us, don't be deceived. It's whatever you sow. This is a a truism. It's a, a principle that is always there. Whatever you sow, that is the very thing that you will reap. Whether it's to your sinful nature or whether it's to the spirit. And so we have to, again, challenge our hearts about the importance, to get back to the phrase in Psalm 126, about sowing whoever goes forth weeping while they sow. In these, in these three, three categories. There's, there's something else actually in this Galatians passage I just want to point out. Because it says in verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. We will reap. You know, all of us get there, don't we? Get a bit tired, a bit weary, a bit jaded. You know, we've done, done this for years. And, you know, will I keep on going? You know, he says, don't, don't be weary and well, don't give up. You know, keep, keep at it. Because if we do, we will reap if we faint not. Now, you're all thinking, you know, I've, I've been sowing stuff for years. You know, I'm thinking of family members and so forth, and and nothing has ever happened. You know, and this this is telling me that I will reap. I will definitely reap. Is Is that really true? Well, I think what we have to remember is these instructions about weeping and sowing seeds 
are not just said to me or to you as one single individual. They're said to the people of God as a whole. Now, now let, me, let me try and explain what I mean by that because I think it's very helpful actually and it saves us from doubting the promises of God. And this is the final bit of you know, work. John chapter 4. This is the story about the woman at the well. If I can get you to turn to this one. And after that incident, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says in John 4 verse 35, he says, I want you to lift up your eyes. And I want you to to look on the fields because they're white already to harvest. Now he says this, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I mean, they, they, they pitched up that day and the whole, the whole village came out. And, and they were all converted to Christ. And, I mean, they'd never been there before. But Jesus is saying to them, look, there, there were other people who labored here. We don't even know who they were. We have no idea what their names were. But in that, that, in that area and in that vicinity, there had been people who had sown seeds for many years. And Jesus came with his disciples that day and he reaped a harvest. Now, what the Lord is saying to them is, understand this, the sower and the reaper will rejoice together. Some people sow. Other people enter into their labors and they reap. But they all work together. And it may well be that some of us at times in our lives are called upon principally to be sowers. Through tough times, sowing with weeping, bearing that precious seed, weeping as we go. But there will be a reaping one day, there will be a harvest. But it might not be me that does it. It might be somebody else that enters into what I have sown. I think that's a very helpful passage actually, in John chapter 4, when we understand this principle. So there we go, that is present tense. And now finally, just as we close, um, the future tense. Because it says, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I I do like the authorised version uh, on this one, I'd have to say that. Uh, This is how it reads. Um, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall doubtless come home, without a doubt, will doubtless come home with rejoicing, bearing their sheaves with them. And you can see the picture, you know, of, of, of the farmer staggering, staggering home with the big sheaves of corn at the end of the harvest time. And, and, and the point that he's making here is this, is that uh, there will be a harvest. There will very definitely be a harvest. Without a shadow of doubt, there, there is going to be a harvest. And that's what he's, he's telling these pilgrims. You know, remember, you, you come home 
And your, your arms will be full of sheaves. And so we take, we take something of real encouragement for that. I mean, I do like the, the picture that I think lies behind it. You know, some of the commentators have pictured this. You know, the person that sows in tears, it's the farmer. And it's at the sowing time of the year. And he looks around and times are tough, things are hard. He's got the family around about them. They're all starving. You know, they're pretty poor. And, he, and he's weighing things up. What do I do here? Do I use what I have um, to, bake, to bake bread for my children in the here and now? Or do I take this seed and do I sow it with tears in my eyes, knowing that one day there will be a harvest that will come and I will have more than enough to, to feed my family with? I mean, I think that is the picture, actually. And so, and so we take that analogy. And although it might be difficult for us in sowing the seed just now, we have to do it in the expectancy of the harvest that uh, is, going, is going to happen. So take that to heart. Um, I found it, as I was thinking about this, helpful um, to, to reflect on how how Christ, in a sense, fulfills this psalm. Now, he must have sung this, of course, when, when, when he was a boy, 12 years of age, going to the temple, or, or during the other occasions when he went up to Jerusalem. He would have sung this, along with the worshippers. And I, I couldn't help but think about what he said in John chapter 12 on one occasion. Unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Christ wept as he sowed that seed. You know, you look at Calvary, and that was that seed falling into the ground and dying. But because that happened, there has been a harvest that has come from that. And, and, and the Lord said, and you want to read that passage, it's John chapter 12, by the way. And what the Lord says is that if you want to follow me, and we were, we were learning about that this morning, if you want to follow me, that's the kind of attitude that you'll need to have as well. Because whoever loves their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake in the gospel, they, they'll find it. And we've got to fall into the ground and, in a sense, die as well. Lose our life for Christ's sake so that a harvest can be produced. So, there you go. Three tenses, a three-tense pilgrim to grasp our past, what great things the Lord has done for us, to understand our present, the need to keep on sowing, often with tears, and a conviction about the future, that the harvest is inevitable, that we will come with rejoicing. Bearing our sheaves. That round about the throne. From every tongue. And tribe. People and nation. People will praise the Lamb. And praise God. Because of the gospel of Christ. So let's learn to, to sing this song of, uh, of pilgrimage. As we travel through uh, the next week. Uh, with its uh, three part harmony. I suppose. As we've thought about it uh, tonight. So may God bless his word. Uh, I'll pray and then we'll have our, our final song. Lord, we give thanks for your word and we ask that what has been said tonight will touch our hearts and be helpful.
that we might be able to transport that into our pilgrimage as we journey towards the eternal city uh, with our eyes upon Christ. So bless your people. Uh, Give us encouragement. May our fellowship be sweet and our joy uh, focused on our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we give thanks. Amen.